And as you're seated, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be in Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. And as mentioned earlier, we're having a congregational meeting directly after this. A couple times a year, we try and have, in essence, this is your standard church business meeting, but giving constraints of kind of who we are in space. We try and squeeze it all in. And so we have an abbreviated service this morning. So for the first time nearly my life, I have my timer going because I have exactly 20 minutes. And when my 20 minutes are up, I have to stop. But uh, so it's run. So we got to be quick. And uh, as you're turning there, what we're looking at in Matthew is for the next several chapters, we're going to see Jesus is in the midst of a battle. He's in the midst of a fight. And this is a fight to the death. And some fights are obvious. A couple weeks ago, Cynthia and Sam, our five-year-old, it was a Friday uh, afternoon, and for lunch, we went to the, uh, one of our neighborhood parks to have lunch and for him to play on the playground. And while we were there, about 30 boys from Lake Nona High School uh, descended onto the park, got in a giant circle, and they started their own fight club. Two kids just started fighting in the middle of the circle. I think, I I'm, wonder what I should do. Should I break this up and call the police? What, you know, this, this is an obvious fight. Some fights aren't as obvious. They're a little more subtle. They're a little colder. And for the next four chapters, we're going to see Jesus with the religious authorities. They are in a fight, but it's a, it's a verbal battle. And it goes back and forth. And so let's first kind of, Matthew will set the context for the showdown that's coming in verse 23 of chapter 21. And when he entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus answered them, I will also ask you a question. And if you tell me the answer, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Matthew is setting up this showdown that's going to happen, and it's going to culminate in the cross for this whole week. And part of the context, you see how brilliantly uh, what Matthew is doing, he is, he is moving us to a place. So in this section, he is both summarizing everything that he's told us up until this point about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And then he's using this to transition and anticipate all of the tension and the drama that's coming. And the way he does is he's going to set up three, uh, three uh, acts, three illustrations of Jesus in the world. Because for Matthew, discipleship has two basic contexts. You have context where you learn, you're taught, you have to listen and learn. And then there's context where you live. You're out in the world and you're living, you're responding, you're acting. And so first he's going to give three stories of Jesus in the world living. But those three stories are meant to illustrate who Jesus is. He's the, the, the merciful high priest who comes to heal all of our infirmities and the weak come to him and find mercy. And then he's the mighty king who comes to uh, sit on his throne, but he comes to serve, not to be served. He comes to give his life, not to take, his, take life. And then he's the, the great prophet who speaks God's authoritative word that's meant to be heard and obeyed. So those three stories, prophet, priest, king. 
And then now he's transitioning and he's going to give us three uh, teaching blocks, three parables where Jesus gives three parables and they're meant to illustrate what does faithful discipleship look like? What does it mean to faithfully follow him? And those three parables are setting up this whole movement of this conflict about whose authority, who are you to say and do these things? And in this brilliantly symmetrical movement, he has three stories that center around the issue of authority. And then there's gonna be four questions where he's attacked, four questions. And then there's gonna be seven woes that he calls down on the religious leaders. So a movement of seven, another movement of seven, but the central theme running all through all of it is that, that question of authority. And this is one of the great themes for Matthew's whole gospel. Uh, uh, Douglas O'Donnell's fabulous commentary on Matthew says the, the melodic line, the music that runs through the whole gospel is this question of authority. That here Jesus, he's come all authority, all nations, all allegiance. All authority is his, and so he demands all allegiance from all uh, the nations. And so th authority has already been a key theme. The people marveled when Jesus pre uh, preached the Sermon on the Mount. Here's one who preaches with authority, not like the, our religious leaders. And then when he heals the man brought down on the roof, he forgives his sins. And he says, so that you know the Son of Man, I have authority to forgive sins, rise. And then at the end of the gospel, he says, all authority has been given to me because I've, I've died and I've risen. And now I give it to you. And your job is to go out and make disciples in all the nations. So he comes and the question that they're going to battle over is authority. And then notice the back and forth. Uh, it's the chief priest and the, the elders, the religious leaders. And from their perspective, they're saying, right, who does this guy think he is? I mean, first, yesterday, he comes barging into our temple and flipping over tables and rearranging things. And then the next morning, he comes back here thinking he can just set up shop and teach. Who does he, this guy think he is? And so they pose this question, you know, where, where do you get the th authority from? Who gave you this authority in verse 23? And now their question is not their problem. The problem is their posture. See, Jesus can discern that they're not asking sincerely. They're not open to the truth. They're not humbly seeking. Their accusation is conveniently masqueraded as a question. And then Jesus' response is just masterful because he's ultimately revealing their own intentions and exposing their hypocrisy. See, as they gathered, did you hear they gathered and there was only two options that they thought uh, they could choose and they chose neither. And the point of the story is that no matter what Jesus says, they're not going to listen to him. And in the end, no matter what he says, they're gonna twist and use his words against him. And so he knows. They didn't believe John's message because they didn't respond in faith. And so they knew that they couldn't publicly say that John's was from man because they feared the people. But then they couldn't publicly say it was from God because they didn't listen to John and they didn't follow him. It might be worth thinking, all right, well, what was John's message? What was the message that he brought that they refused to respond to or believe? You know, John's message was a message of repentance that God has come and you should uh, repent, be baptized. He promised, I baptize you with water, but there's one after me who's coming, who's, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, and he's going to baptize you with fire. 
And his message was that he must increase, I must decrease. His message was, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the right response to John would have been to repent and believe and follow the one he was pointing to. And they weren't doing that. So Jesus questions them. And so now he's going to illustrate their refusal with three different stories. But as we move to the stories, just a couple lessons. Just did you notice how worried they were about the people? We'll see that in verse 26. And then in verse 46, they uh, said that they were afraid of the people. And did you notice how insincerely they responded with, I don't know. We don't know. And it might be worth thinking about whenever you're in conflict with someone to be very hesitant or leery of things people claim they don't know. You know, most people have two problems. Often we don't know what we don't know. But then some people's problems is they do know what they don't know. And so often it's just somebody, oh, well, I didn't know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to. I didn't know. I didn't know. Hmm, Maybe. And that's what he's going to press on. And then he's going to give these three series of parables. And those parables, in essence, are like verbal punches. And he's going to go after them. So look at this first one in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind. Change, right? That's where repent. He repented and went. And he went to the other son and said to the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the Father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. You didn't believe. And what belief, belief meant was to repent. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind. You didn't repent and believe him. So when you remember the parables, it's important to, all right, let's get our characters and who do they symbolize. So you got a father, he represents God. You got oldest son, first son, and he's the, I won't go, but then repents and does. And then second son is, I will go, and then never actually does. And the twist when Jesus explains this is the first son represents the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all those who in the end believed John's message. And this is shocking to them because they're the heroes of the story. And in this world, I mean, tax collectors and prostitutes were kind of, uh, I don't know, they were like stereotypes. So this tax collector would be a stereotype who's rightly condemned for their traitorous uh, economic ex exploitation of their own people. So these are people notorious for economically exploiting uh, those around them. And then the prostitutes, they are notorious for their moral, their sexual sin. And I said, but those are the ones who heard and repent. In turn, but the second son, this is the I will, but didn't. He, that, that son symbolizes the religious leaders. They were the verbally zealous who in obedience, uh, had vocal obedience to God, but failed to actually listen to the leadership that God sends and puts over them. So the highest emissaries that God had sent to date, John the Baptist and Jesus, they refused to believe. They called themselves sons and servants, but didn't follow. Now this parable, a couple lessons, I mean, the beauty is that the gates of the kingdom are open wide to the most ungodly if they will repent 
This is who Jesus came for, to seek and to save those who are lost. It's not the healthy that need the doctor, it's the sick. Spurgeon said that this, the verse 31 is one of the most precious passages in the whole Bible, where which of the two did the will of the Father? It's the ones who come, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they go into the kingdom of God before you. But notice the point of the parable is obedience. The call is to repent and obey. So the tax collectors and the prostitutes are utterly welcome to come to him, but they can't stay that way. They cannot remain in their current occupations. The tax collectors cannot continue to economically exploit people. When the prostitutes come, they have to resign from their current employer. They can't stay in that occupation. And this actually created a social service real challenge for the early church. Because most women who were involved in prostitution were not involved because they thought that was a positive career path to get into. They didn't wake up one morning as a 12-year-old girl saying, hmm, here's a great way I can make it in the world. Part of it was because of just the economic, social, familial realities crushed them in such a way where they had no other choice. So that's why in the middle of the first century, the church in Rome had 1,500 widows, in essence, on their payroll that they supported. Because they said, not only, you, you can't go into this life, but we're not just going to leave you out into the world alone. And so kind of the way the worship service worked is you'd have a table that had all of the elements for communion on, and you'd have another table that everybody would just come and they would bring. They would bring their eggs and their whatever they had from their house, and the roles of the deacons was to take that stuff to all of those widows to distribute all throughout the week. So the prostitutes were welcome to come, but they couldn't stay that way. That's part of bearing fruits that keeps them with repentance. Now you think about your own life. We come, what are the fruits that should uh, result in repentance in your own life? Think about the things you struggled with this week. You know, this week, have you wrestled with pride? You know, have you looked down on anyone? Or have you been too stung by criticism this week? Or felt snubbed or ignored? What are the fruits of the repentance look like for you? You know, one thing, you consider the gospel, you consider the free grace of Christ till you experience a, a decreasing disdain for others, because you're a sinner too, and you experience a decreasing pain over their criticism because you're not uh, putting so much stock in the approval of a person. And what happens is the fruit of repentance is a grateful, restful joy. Or maybe one of the fruits of repentance, maybe this week you've ex experienced or expressed a coldness and an indifference to those around you. Maybe you thought unkindly about someone or been trying to justify yourself by caricaturing another person. What's the fruit of repentance? We consider the free grace of God until that coldness in our heart thaws out and the kindness, unkindness slips away because we think about his sacrificial love for us and or the fruit of this uh, repentance as we become more patient with others, more attentive to others, all out of free grace. So that's the fruit of repentance. And then let's notice quickly, very quickly, this last story. 
Hear then another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one, and they killed another, and they stoned another. And then again, he sent another ser other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And then finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and this was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes? Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be the prophet. So in this parable, Jesus gives a condensed, symbolic retelling of all of salvation history. And so you put the characters in place. It's the master of the house is God the Father, and the vineyard is God's people, that's Israel, and the tenants are Israel's appointed leaders, past and present in our text. And the fruit represents that fruit of repentance, that fruit of worship and repentance, what God wants to see displayed in their life, more broadly, it's that obedient life. And the two sets of servants that he sent represent the Old Testament prophets. You know, perhaps maybe two sets of uh, groups of prophets, you know, in the Hebrew uh, construction of the Old Testament, you have the former and the latter prophets. Maybe it's first the former, maybe then the latter, but they're the prophets. Then the beating and the stoning and the killing represent their persecutions. And then the son that's sent represents him. That's the son of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a veiled reference to himself, but interesting enough, it's the first public unveiling of who he's claiming to be. And then the killing is the cross as he's put outside of the camp and killed. And then there's another group of tenants that are mentioned by the leader's reply that symbolize the people who are producing the proper fruit. They're the true followers of Jesus, his true disciples, and they're neither Jew nor Gentile. They're this new type of people who follow him in faithful uh, loyalty. And this story is, is a simple story, but it's a sad story. You, know, you hear it, it aches, because it, it's a story that God so deeply loved the world that he chose Israel from among the nations to bless all of the nations. And he tenderly brought them to life, and he cared for them, and he nurtured them to health, and he rescued them out of Egypt, and he gave them the law, and he set up his city, and he built a temple so they could regularly meet together and come into his presence to worship, and he provided an altar so their sins could be forgiven, and they could be made clean. 
You see all the verbs that he does in verse 33, the different things that the master of the house does. He plants, he puts a fence, he digs, he cultivates, he builds the wine press. But then the leaders of his people persecuted and killed the prophets. They refused to listen. And then he sends more prophets in his great loving kindness and his long, long suffering. But then the same fate meet them. And then finally, he so loved them that he sent his own son. But when the son comes, they plot, they scheme, they arrest, and they kill the son. And then, amazingly, the story doesn't end there. It's not over. You look at verse 40 and the great punch. The, the, the deep irony is that he asked them the question about what the appropriate judgment should be for them, and they know the right answer. Put those miserable wretches to death. You know, in their answer, they're condemning themselves. Often we see what other people deserve a lot more clearly than we see what we deserve. And when the owner comes, what will he do? And for them, at least the temple in Jerusalem, their day of mercy was almost over. The temple would be spiritually destroyed that week when Jesus died on the cross. It would be physically destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed it. And their day of mercy was coming to an end. But as we look for us, the lessons, do you see how long God is patient with his people? He is patient, not wishing that any should perish. And he plants a vineyard and he cares for it and he sends his servants to harvest it. And even after the first servants are hurt or destroyed, he holds back. And then he sends more. And then he holds back. And then he sends more. And in the greatest act of loving kindness the world has ever seen, he sent his own son. And even when you read the parable and you kind of put it like this, it, it all sounds so crazy. Like, would any landowner really do this? I mean, this piece of property, this is an investment. It's a business investment for him. No, nobody would show this kind of mercy. He expects it to produce a return, but he's patient and he is just. Now, for us, now is the day of mercy. But one day the day of mercy will end. But while it is the day of mercy, we are wise to flee to the sun with his arms open wide in grace. You know, what is the fruit of repentance he seeks is to turn from your sin and believe. It's to celebrate the greatest gift that's ever been given to man, the, the, that a way has been made to come into his presence is to believe that it's his death that pays the price for our sins and it's his resurrection that can bring us to new life. So if you've never repented of your sins or turned to him in his grace or mercy, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day when he extends his arms wide and he says, turn to me and trust me. The day of mercy will end, but today it's open. So for all who've come to him and all who believe, this is a symbol of how we can find mercy and grace. This same week, he's going to take the bread and he's going to break it. And he's going to say, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. Take in remembrance of me.